Welcome to NTD News Today. Here are today's top stories. Electoral drama in Georgia as a federal judge weighs in on Republican-drawn congressional maps. Find out why one lawmaker is sounding the alarm and vowing to fight the ruling. Former President Trump is dropped from the main 2024 ballot pending appeal. A Democrat who voted to impeach Trump now comes to his defense. Find out why. 2023 has been an eventful year for the White House Press Briefing Room. We bring you some of the most memorable clashes between reporters and White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre. Russia unleashed its largest missile attack on Ukraine since the start of the war. What are Ukrainian authorities reporting in the aftermath of the massive assault? And we take a look at what Sydney, Australia has planned for New Year's. It will include spectacular fireworks and AI animations. Don't miss it. This is NTD News Today, live from our NTD Global Headquarters. Here are Stephania Cox and Chris Beers. Former President Trump is kicked off another state's primary ballot, Maine's. Maine Secretary of State Shenna Bellows issued the decision yesterday, making Maine the second state to disqualify the GOP frontrunner from next year's presidential primary. The decision is based on an interpretation of the 14th Amendment's rarely used insurrection clause. Bellows, a Democrat, is giving time to appeal before the order comes into effect. Trump's campaign says it will quickly file an objection, calling the decision atrocious. NTD's Jeremy Sandberg has some reactions to the unilateral action in Maine. Maine Secretary of State Shenna Bellows stated she did not reach the conclusion lightly to bar Trump from the state's primary in her 34-page ruling Thursday. The U.S. Constitution does not tolerate an assault on our government, on the foundations of our government, and that Maine election law and the Constitution required, indeed obligated me to act. Bellows presided over an administrative hearing earlier this month about Trump's eligibility for office. A group of former state lawmakers filed the challenge against Trump. Republican House Speaker Mike Johnson weighed in on X, calling Bellows' decision reckless and partisan. He says he's confident the Supreme Court will reverse it. GOP presidential candidate Vivek Ramaswamy had one request for Americans after Bellows' announcement, posting on X, open your eyes. It's unconstitutional, it's anti-American, it's wrong. Ramaswamy told Fox News he'll withdraw from any GOP primary ballot where competitors are forcibly removed through unconstitutional maneuvers. He's calling for other GOP candidates to follow suit. We then take Maine out of the GOP primary process. That's the logical way to handle this. Florida governor and presidential candidate Ron DeSantis told Fox, Maine's ruling is, in his words, opening Pandora's box. DeSantis says it defies every notion of constitutional due process, abided by for over 200 years. Maine's procedure for deciding ballot eligibility is different than Michigan's and Colorado's. Eligibility is first considered by the Secretary of State before any court. Bellows cited the Colorado ruling in her decision and its appeal. She wrote a possible reversal by the U.S. Supreme Court did not relieve her of her responsibility to act. She acknowledged that the nation's highest court is likely to eventually weigh in and told CNN she'll follow its ruling. Trump's attorneys Wednesday asked Bellows to recuse herself from the issue for public statements after January 6 that, quote, exhibit personal bias in this matter. The letter cited several past posts on Twitter, now X. They say that show she already made the conclusion on alleged insurrection then, before the submission of any evidence or argument in the current matter. Trump's team has vowed to appeal Bellows' decision to Maine's Superior Court. Maine's GOP primary is March 5th. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. 
As Democratic Congressman from Maine is now pushing back against removing former President Trump from the ballot, Jared Golden took to Twitter explaining why he doesn't support the decision. Golden wrote, quote, I voted to impeach Donald Trump for his role in the January 6th insurrection. I do not believe he should be reelected as President of the United States. However, we are a nation of laws. Therefore, until he is actually found guilty of the crime of insurrection, he should be allowed on the ballot. Following the January 6th Capitol breach, Golden co-sponsored the articles of impeachment introduced by another Democrat. He said Trump's failure to act quickly aided people at the Capitol building. And Republican Congressman James Comer says he's not surprised that Maine is removing Trump from the ballot. The House Oversight Committee chair says he fears more blue states will take similar steps. Comer calls it obvious election interference, saying most voters disagree with the decision. He added that Democrats are trying to disrupt Republican momentum, pulling, quote, stunts like this. And here to speak with us about Maine and more, senior attorney and legal at Pacific Legal, Mark Miller. Mark, welcome. Legal analysts have voiced. Steph, happy New Year. Good morning. Yes, Happy New Year. Now, legal analysts have voiced concern about constitutional implications and due process in this case. How do you respond to these concerns, and what legal precedents support or challenge Secretary Bellow's decision? Would you say? Secretary Bellows recognizes that she is in an un unprecedented territory for a Secretary of State. Obviously, she's coming close on the heels of the Colorado Supreme Court's decision to similarly bounce President Trump from the ballot in Colorado. And the U.S. Supreme Court is going to have to take it up, I would predict. Jay Sekulow, on behalf of the Colorado Republican Party, has already asked the Supreme Court to consider it. And pleadings are already being filed there. And I would expect you're going to see some quick uh, decision making at the Supreme Court. Uh, in the next few days. So given the challenges to President Trump's eligibility and the public hearing held on December 15th, what factors do you think played a significant role in the decision? And how did the attorneys assess the arguments presented during the hearing? So the arguments that the Secretary of State looked at include um, two of the main arguments that are being made on, by both sides. One, the 14th Amendment, Section 3, describes the individuals and the roles that can be barred from the uh, office if they have engaged in insurrection or rebellion. The president is not listed in the list of people who could be barred from office. And so that's one of the arguments that was made to the Secretary of State. She obviously came down on the side that even though the president isn't listed, he still qualifies as someone that the uh, those who wrote the 14th Amendment would have expected cannot be on the ballot if he is or she is indeed an insurrectionist. And then secondly, is the 14th Amendment, Section 3, self-executing? And by that, I mean, can the Secretary of State just read the language and decide she can make the decision on her own that President Trump or anyone else was an insurrectionist and, and thus can't be on the ballot? Or does Congress have right. to be involved? In mm. fact, Section 5 of the 14th Amendment says that. Okay, and now President Trump's legal team sought to have Secretary Bellows recused, citing her public statements on the issue. How do you view the impact of these statements on the decision-making process and the overall fairness of the proceedings? Yeah, I think the Secretary of State's role here reminds me very much of the Secretary of State in the year 2000, where it was Catherine Harris, a Republican in that case, not a Democrat, but the same issue uh, attached there. Democrats thought Secretary Catherine Harris was tilting the scales in favor of her preferred candidate, who 
you know, President George, became President George W. Bush. Here, Republicans see pictures of the Secretary of State with President Biden, with President Obama, and they assume she is ruling in favor, or I should say against President Trump because she is tilted and biased against him. You can see why people would think that. And so you can see why people like Speaker of the House Johnson are accusing her of acting recklessly and with partisanship. Now, with the recent ruling in Colorado, Trump's appeal and his planned appeal for Maine, how might the decisions in different states impact each other legally and what implications could that have on the overall electoral process? It's always easier not to be first. And so a lot of uh, experts who looked at this, uh, the way cases decides, cases are being decided, said that about the Colorado Supreme Court, that now that Colorado Supreme Court had ruled against President Trump, you would see other states making similar decisions, whereas they may have been afraid to be the ones to, to jump first. They won't be afraid if they're following Colorado. And that's exactly what's happening. That's why Jay Sekulow, on behalf of the Republican Party of Colorado, rushed to the Supreme Court, which, of course, stayed the ruling in Colorado. So for now, what that means is President Trump is still on the ballot in Colorado. And until the U.S. Supreme Court acts, he will remain on the ballot in Colorado. And that's according to the Colorado Supreme Court's decision. Hmm. And so lastly, Section 3 of the 14th Amendment was created to prevent Confederates from running for office. Could this history impact the US's, U.S. Supreme Court's ruling? There's no question that they're going to be looking at the history, the uh, arguments that were made for or against the amendment, the arguments that were made about the text of the amendment. For example, you know, we mentioned that the president is not listed in, an, in the uh, 14th Amendment as somebody who would be barred from the ballot. But in fact, um, he was listed in an earlier draft, the president's office. So that's going to be something they'll hear about. They're also going to look at the fact that Chief Justice Chase at the time issued an opinion saying that it was only Congress that could decide whether someone could be barred from the ballot. Uh, the Secretary of State in Maine rejected that argument, but that's something the Supreme Court's going to have to grapple with. All right. Mark Miller, senior attorney at Pacific Legal, really appreciate it. Thank you, Steph. And GOP presidential hopeful Nikki Haley is in the spotlight. A nine-year-old girl asked her yesterday if she'd pardon former President Trump if elected. Here's how she responded. I would pardon Trump if he is found guilty. A leader needs to think about what's in the best interest of the country. What's in the best interest of the country is not to have an 80-year-old man sitting in jail that continues to divide our country. Haley made the comments at a campaign stop in New Hampshire. The presidential candidate said she would be inclined to pardon Trump earlier this year. Haley has enjoyed a bump in popularity as of late, but former President Trump still leads Haley and Florida Governor Ron DeSantis by over 50 points. Trump is currently dealing with four legal cases with 91 criminal charges in total. And continuing with Haley, a new poll could put some wind in the sails of the former South Carolina governor. The American Research Group survey has Haley trailing former President Trump by a mere four points in the first in the nation primary state of New Hampshire, with Trump at 33 percent and Haley at 29 percent. A few days before the December 21st poll, another poll showed Haley was only trailing President Trump by 15 points. And the GOP got a legal win yesterday in Georgia. A federal judge there approved new Republican-drawn congressional maps. The maps were redrawn after a judge ruled that maps drawn in 2021 
illegally diluted the votes of black voters. The new maps add black majority districts, including one in Congress and a total of seven in the Georgia State House and Senate. However, Republicans redrew the maps in ways that give them an electoral advantage in some Democrat-held districts that don't have black majorities. Staying with that topic, one outcome was the vir virtual elimination of the 7th Congressional District, which has a large minority population. Democrat Congresswoman Lucy McBath represents the district. McBath reacted to the ruling in a post on X, vowing to challenge the court's decision or run for re-election in a different district. McBath is well known for advocating for gun control. Her own son fell victim to gun violence. In 2012, 17-year-old Jordan Davis was shot and killed in a confrontation over how loud his music was. Coming up, this week marks five years of Russian detention for Paul Whelan. The former Marine is now describing his situation and sending a message to President Biden. Find out what he says. California getting pounded by giant waves. See the moment a rogue wave hits a beach full of onlookers. That more when we return. As 2023 comes to a close, we take a look back at the performance of White House Press Secretary Corinne Jean-Pierre. She had many memorable clashes with reporters throughout the year, and some accused her of censoring them. Good afternoon, everyone. 2023 marked the second year on the job for White House Press Secretary Corrine Jean-Pierre, and it was not short of contentious exchanges with reporters. In January, reporters pressed Jean-Pierre on the discovery of classified documents in President Biden's possession. I think you should, I think you should reach out. Uh, to the White House counsel. We're reaching out on a constant basis, okay. so why not have them Okay, the I am saying to, to you that we have put out lengthy statements, and you can reach out to them, as you all have been doing, and I will leave it there. Go ahead, go ahead, go ahead, go ahead, Justin. Why not have them come and answer Just, the questions? I, they have been, they have been talking to you all pretty regularly the last couple of days. Uh, we have put out, they have put out uh, lengthy st statements on this. I just read out uh, what sh Richard Sarber had to say, and I would refer you to the White House counsel. I am limited in what I can say because, because the Department of Justice, we see them as being independent when it comes to these types of issues. And so I'm not going to go beyond what the president say, said, and I'm not going to go beyond what the, the lawyers say. I have to go around. You've asked me about, you you've asked me, Ed. That, that there's going to be a limit in transparency, public, non-legal transparency, and what can be shared and said by this way. I disagree. There has, I disagree, Ed. There has not been a limit of transparency. That the is, that is, that is, there has not been a limit of transparency. That I will, I will disagree with you on that, Justin. Reporters often pressed Jean-Pierre on the performance of the Biden administration, including its economic record, the debt ceiling crisis, and the investigation into Hunter Biden. Amid House probes into Hunter Biden, the press secretary refused to answer questions about the president's son. I, I'm just not going to get into family discussion, personal family discussion. As you know, Hunter is his son. I'm just not going to get Let into me it. Ask you this. If, if I just, I just answered the question. I just answered the question. Yes or no? Was the president involved in the shakedown? I just answered. 
Stephen, Stephen, I just answered the question. I just said, I just, this isn't, it's not up to you how I answer the question. I just answer the question by telling you my colleagues at the White House Council has dealt with this and I would refer you to them. Go ahead. Sometimes chaos erupted in the White House press briefing room as well. No, 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 no. Some no, members no, of the White no, House press this. corps have directly confronted Jean-Pierre, saying this. she's what? censoring what? them. You can't keep discriminating against some people in the briefing room because you don't like them, you don't like them. So you have a choice. No, you, you, you have a choice. You have a choice. Okay. And I'm saying that that's not right. This is not China. This is not Russia. This is the United All States. Right. This is the White House. It's been seven months. You guys have not done anything for me. If you have grievances, you should bring them to her later. I have done that. I have done that. All my emails have been ignored. And the press corps is tired of dealing with this. It isn't just about that. you, Simon. Understand that you get questioned all the time and you don't understand what it is to sit here for eight months and being discriminated hey, against. Understand that you're in the front row and you feel comfortable and you get questions all the time. But there are people in the back who don't get any questions. Don't make assumptions about what the rest of us do. Mind your manners when you're in here. If you have a problem, you bring it up afterwards. But you are impinging on everybody in here who's only trying to do their job. Okay, Sorry. thank you. I'm saying that you shouldn't discriminate against some people because you don't agree with their question, you're offended by your question. We all heard it. All right. Guys, as you all know, many of you know, this is the White House press briefing room, a historic room, a room that should have decorum. Be very clear about that. Discriminating against me for the past nine months. Stop. How is she discriminating against you? No, she, she, she called on you. She just gave you a few questions. If I just need a question, question in nine ask months. Ask a question. Please. Go ahead, allow me to Keep do my up. job and ask my question. When you say that you are the journalists are being discriminated against, okay. I mean, if this, if this continues, we're going to end the press briefing. If this briefing continues, room, I'm to ask you stop. you're being incredibly stop. rude. Stop. You're pretty rude. You're being incredibly rude. And not calling on you today. Go ahead. Right. Go ahead you should be ashamed Go of ahead. that. Go ahead. That shows Go ahead. disrespect to a free and independent Go ahead. media. It's black. I'm going to close. I'm going to largest and most widely read newspaper screen. That shows contempt for a free and independent press. Go ahead. I'm calling on somebody who I haven't called in a long time as well. Go ahead. This week marks five years since Russian authorities detained Paul Whelan, the former U.S. Marine, now appeals for President Biden's help, describing the situation he's been in for the past five years. I start today with you know, seeing the four national, or seeing the national anthems of my four countries, and you know, things get progressively worse from there. But you know, there are people I speak to, I, I make calls home, I write letters, I read books. Um, but it's, it's extremely difficult being innocent and in prison and waiting for people to help you. It's, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a disintegrating experience. Uh, your mind, your body, your soul, everything. President Biden, please use every resource available to secure my release, as you would do if your own son had been taken hostage. Russian authorities accuse Whelan of being a spy. They sentenced him to 16 years in prison. The U.S. State Department on Thursday issued a statement, again calling it a wrongful detention by Russia. The U.S. says Moscow is using Whelan as a political pawn 
which it calls unacceptable, adding that Biden continues to work on Whelan's release. And Democratic Congresswoman Haley Stevens is renewing her calls on Russia to release Whelan. Stevens represents the Michigan district where Whelan lived before his detention. Whelan is being wrongfully detained in a Russian labor camp. His life, as he knew it, was taken from him. Whelan this week said he's concerned he'll be left behind in Russia again. The U.S. government reached multiple prisoner swap deals with Russia since Whelan's detention started. For example, when the U.S. freed basketball player Brittany Griner from Russian detention. Whelan says he fears something similar might happen again. Earlier this month, the State Department said Russia declined what the U.S. called a significant proposal. The U.S. offered a deal which included freeing both Whelan and Wall Street Journal reporter Evan Gershkovich. The Department of Justice is threatening to sue Texas Governor Greg Abbott again, this time over a new Texas law that grants local law enforcement the authority to arrest illegal immigrants. The DOJ says the law violates the U.S. Constitution. It's warning Abbott to back down from enforcing it. The measure, known as Senate Bill 4, is set to take effect in March. Abbott reacted by accusing the Biden administration of, quote, destroying America. Abbott on X said not only does the administration fail to enforce current U.S. immigration laws, it now wants to stop Texas from enforcing laws against illegal immigration. A powerful ocean storm is driving towering waves onto the California coastline. The wild weather is triggering flooding and warnings of dangerous swells. CCTV captured the moment a rogue wave hit the beach in the city of Ventura, wiping out several bystanders and vehicles. At least eight people were transported to local hospitals. Here's another video. A non-paying customer crashed the gates of this California restaurant. The massive waves drew surfers and spectators to the famed Mavericks Beach surf spot on Thursday. 30 to 40 foot waves were spotted breaking at the legendary site. High water and dangerous rip currents will churn along some of California's beaches through the weekend. Much of the West Coast is under coastal flood and high surf alerts. Coming up, the Tokyo Stock Exchange marks the end of the trading year with a ceremony. Find out what they're celebrating. And auctions in 2023 see an array of rare high-priced items. Wealthy bidders put up millions, sometimes tens of millions, to win fine art and rare spirits. We'll have the highlights soon when we return. Over to some business news. Japanese shares notched their biggest annual gain in a decade this year. The Tokyo Stock Exchange held a ceremony today to mark the end of the trading year. The CEO of the Japan Exchange Group discussed the success. I believe contributing factors to the market rise are the normalization of economic activity following the coronavirus pandemic, the shift of funds to Japan amid rising geopolitical risks, as well as the increased demand for Japanese companies with their strong corporate performance and capital investment. The manager of Japan's 2023 championship winning World Baseball Classic team was a special guest at the event. He rang a ceremonial bell while those in attendance clapped to mark the end of trading for 2023. Japan's benchmark Nikkei climbed 28% to post its largest yearly gain since 2013. 
Russia unleashed over 100 missiles and dozens of drones against Ukrainian targets, officials said today. The attacks killed at least 27 civilians. A Ukrainian Air Force official called it the biggest aerial barrage of nearly two-year war. The Ukrainian Air Force intercepted almost 90 missiles and nearly 30 drones overnight, according to Ukraine's military chief. During the nearly 18-hour attack, dozens were injured and more were buried underneath rubble. Exact numbers are still unknown, Ukrainian officials say. A maternity hospital, apartment buildings and schools were among the buildings damaged. Authorities said the attack hit six cities, including the capital Kyiv and other areas across Ukraine. Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky said Russia used every type of weapon in its arsenal. Fighting along the front line is largely bogged down by winter weather. Turkey's new unmanned stealth drone made its maiden flight yesterday, showcasing the latest achievement in the country's defense capabilities. The combat fighter is known as Anka-3. During the one-hour, 10-minute flight, it reached a speed of 170 miles per hour and an altitude of 8,000 feet. The new drone can perform tasks including reconnaissance, surveillance and intelligence. Plus, it can operate covertly without detection. That's due to its design of having neither of having neither horizontal nor vertical tails. It also has a high-speed transfer capability, allowing quick deployment to remote areas. A plane had a bumpy landing at a London airport as Storm Garrett caused heavy winds to batter parts of the UK. Take a look. Oh! 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 Stop it! Oh! 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 Stop! Stop that! Stop that. Oh. Oh my God, mate. That was an aviation enthusiast from Big Jet TV pleading with the plane to stop bouncing down the runway. The storm caused transportation disruptions and damage to homes and cars in other areas. Scotland was the worst affected region in the UK. Some hilarious footage from a Chilean port city. A group of sea animals took advantage of a fisherman protest to have a little adventure. Three sea lions were spotted casually strolling in front of a police vehicles, while seagulls flew overhead and even enjoyed a fishy treat on top of an armored vehicle. The riot police didn't seem bothered by the animal antics. Fishermen closed streets and protested to demand a government bonus that would compensate them after a ban of hockey fish fishing. With 2023 almost over, we take a look at some of the major events that happened near the end of the year. From the start of the Israel-Hamas war to the Colorado ruling blocking former President Trump from the presidential primary, NTD's Jeremy Sandberg has the latest segment of our multi-part series. Hamas launches a terrorist attack on Israel October 7th, firing thousands of rockets from Gaza and breaching the border to murder civilians in towns. The terrorists killed around 260 people at an Israeli music festival that morning and kidnapped others back to Gaza to parade through the streets. Israel says Hamas terrorists killed roughly 1,200 people and took over 240 hostages. The Israeli government officially declared war on Hamas October 8th and began targeting terrorist commanders and infrastructure with airstrikes in response. Evacuations were issued along Israel's northern border with Lebanon as clashes with Iran-backed terrorist group Hezbollah increased. An explosion at a hospital in Gaza City triggers outrage mid-October after widespread reports of an Israeli airstrike. The U.S. and Israel, after an investigation, determined it was caused by a misfired rocket by the terrorist group Palestinian Islamic Jihad. 
I was deeply saddened and outraged by the uh, explosion at the hospital in Gaza yesterday. And based on what I've seen, it appears as though it was done by the other team, not, not you. Hamas releases the first hostages October 20th to American citizens. Aid trucks begin entering Gaza through the Rafah border crossing from Egypt. And the United Nations Secretary General begins accusing Israel of violating international humanitarian law in the Gaza Strip. At the end of October, Israel's Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu announces ground operations in Gaza have begun, vowing to destroy the enemy above and below ground. Now, former House Speaker Kevin McCarthy is ousted. Representative Mike Johnson wins the gavel as the fourth GOP nominee. Netanyahu, November 7th, states Israel's military had encircled Gaza City and is operating inside. MRI center. The military begins operating near Gaza's largest hospital, Al-Shifa, and finds weapons and terrorist infrastructure during a raid. A closet here, which is in the main part of the clinic, this is what they found. A live grenade, ammunition, fighting vest. November 24th, Qatar's foreign ministry announces Israel and Hamas have agreed to a four-day pause, subject to extension, to facilitate the release of hostages. The pause lasts seven days. Hamas releases around 100 hostages in exchange for roughly 210 Palestinian prisoners held on terrorism-related charges. The pause ends when Hamas violates terms of the deal by firing rockets at Israel and failing to release at least 10 hostages a day. At the APEC summit in San Francisco, President Biden doubles down on his view that Chinese regime leader Xi Jinping is effectively a dictator. And in Argentina, libertarian Javier Malay is elected president and 40 construction workers are rescued from a collapsed tunnel in India's Himalayas after being trapped for 17 days. Israel resumes combat operations against Hamas targets in Gaza December 1st. The U.S. vetoes a proposed United Nations Security Council demand for an immediate humanitarian ceasefire, saying it would only benefit Hamas. Israeli troops accidentally shoot and kill three hostages, a tragedy that the IDF says violates its own rules of engagement as they were holding a white flag. The incident is under investigation. The IDF also uncovers a massive Hamas tunnel big enough to drive cars through a quarter mile from the Erez crossing at the Israeli border. Gaza's Hamas-run health ministry claims over 20,000 civilians have been killed. The numbers are unverified and do not differentiate combatants. Back in the U.S., the Colorado Supreme Court rules former President Trump ineligible to appear on the state's primary ballot. Four of seven justices deemed that Trump had participated in an insurrection and should be disqualified under a rarely used clause of the 14th Amendment in the U.S. Constitution. The Colorado court placed the ruling on hold until January 4th, pending Trump's appeal. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. 2023 was a year of exorbitant prices for rare items up for auction. Bidders put millions, sometimes tens of millions, to win fine pieces of art and rare whiskey. NTD's Andrew Thomas has the details. It's been a big year for auctions. In November, Christie sold the Blue Royal at auction for $44.6 million in Geneva. The diamond ring features a 17-carat stone. It is the largest internally flawless vivid blue diamond ever to be offered for sale at auction. It's a pear-shaped diamond. It's pear brilliant cut, which means that the shape is completely unmodified. And vivid blue, which is the highest saturation of color that is given by the Gemological Institute of America. In the art world, some interesting works were up for bidding. Sotheby's auctioned a masterpiece by Peter Paul Rubens in May. The Flemish painter's portrait of a man as Mars from around 1620 in Antwerp went for more than $26 million. We think unique in Rubens' oeuvre, but it works extremely well. 
um, you have this very martial appearance with this very strong arm and then this very soft face, which is um, very obviously a portrait, looking straight at us. Celebrity items had a big year as well. In Geneva, Christie's sold this 1970s Rolex for more than $5 million in November. The timepiece was once owned by Hollywood star Marlon Brando. A sweater made famous by Princess Diana exceeded all expectations. The design features a black sheep among a flock of white ones. The garment sold for $1.1 million in New York. I think the first time she wore it, she was, it was when she was engaged. She was still Lady Diana Spencer and she was just wearing it because she had a sense of fun and she thought it was funny and it being a present given to her and she wore it for that reason. In November, a bottle of Scotch whiskey sold for $2.7 million, an auction record for a bottle of wine or spirits. Just 40 bottles of the Macau in 1926 were bottled in 1986. The whiskey had aged in sherry casks for 60 years. Um, this is one of the oldest vintages ever released from Macallan. It's At the time, it was the oldest whiskey they'd ever released, and the liquid inside is the most valuable whiskey in the world. Wealthy bidders will have to wait just a few more days to see what goes up for auction in 2024. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. Up next, tennis star Rafael Nadal is returning to the court, but does he believe he can win another title? We bring you what he says about his comeback. And as the end of the year draws near, we chat with folks at Times Square reflecting on the past year and looking ahead to hopes and dreams. More shortly here on NTD News Today. Tennis star Rafael Nadal is returning to the court. He'll be celebrating his comeback at the Brisbane International after coming back from an injury. However, the 37-year-old is keeping expectations low. For me, it's impossible to think about uh, winning tournaments today, but uh, what's really possible is to think to, to enjoy uh, the comeback to the, to the course. No, I don't expect much, honestly. The only thing that I expect is uh, be able to, to go on court, to feel myself competitive. Meanwhile, Nadal's rivals, including world number one Novak Djokovic, says he will be at his competitive best on his return. The 22-time Grand Slam champion has been sidelined for one year now due to a hip injury. It started during a defeat at Melbourne Park in January. The Spaniard slipped down in the world rankings almost to number 700. This will be likely his final season on tour. Speaking of Australians, preparations for a giant New Year's celebration are underway down under. Several hundred million people plan to witness the, spe the spectacle. This year, the focus will be firmly anchored around First Nations traditions. And for the first time ever, it will feature visual animations created by artificial intelligence. Here's NTD's Cost MS to tell us more about what to expect. This year's New Year's event is expected to draw in around a million spectators along Sydney Harbour foreshore, alongside the millions watching from afar. To kickstart the evening, a smoking ceremony will be happening on three boats to cleanse the harbour of negative spirits in preparation for the New Year. Followed by stories told via pylon projection illustrations that focus on keeping indigenous culture and identity alive. 
The evening will also feature a tribute to the National Breast Cancer Foundation and a special AI-generated tribute to mark the Sydney Opera House 50th anniversary. The midnight and main display will be launched from five city rooftops. You know, there's 18,000 cues uh, used to uh, synchronise the fireworks uh, to, the, to the soundtracks. Um, you know, in excess of 4,000 hours goes into New Year's Eve, eight and a half tonne of fireworks, 13,000 aerial fireworks, 36,000 ground-based effects. Uh, there's satin shape fireworks, there's falling leaves. For many, the end of the year marks an opportunity to reflect on difficult times, but also to look ahead to a more hopeful future. Hopefully in 2024, uh, there will be more, um, no wars, and uh, everybody will live in peace and harmony. Everybody will support each other. Yeah, that's what we look forward. I do hope that 2024 brings more peace to the world, more tolerance more understanding and um, and that's transferred to our younger generations and that they're not as self-centered or self-interested and they get off their bloody phones. With the new year marking new beginnings, Sydney's message will hopefully lay a precedent for positivity and kindness around the world. Cost MNS, NTD News. Firework sales for New Year's Eve are kicking off in Germany, but they could be banned soon. Some groups, and especially environmental activists, say fireworks are dangerous and bad for nature. Others want to stick to the tradition. It's a tradition for me. It's part of the transition to the New Year in a way, like the Christmas tree at Christmas and Easter eggs at Easter. If you set off fireworks like the ones you can see in the background, if you set them off in the city center, that's not a good idea. And that's why we definitely say no firework zones in the city centers where there is little space, but not in the countryside where people simply have space. Like in many countries, the tradition of fireworks is a central part of New Year's Eve celebrations in Germany. Still, some cities have banned fireworks in dense areas. They've set up no firework zones, especially around busy streets. New York City's Times Square has long dom dominated New Year's Eve celebrations, but that may be changing for some revelers. NTD's Andrew Thomas looked at a recent WalletHub report to find out more. WalletHub ranked Orlando, Florida as the top spot to bring in the new year. The personal finance company cited the city's nightlife, affordable food scene, and legal fireworks for its number one ranking. San Diego took second place for its climate. WalletHub also ranked the city's restaurant scene on par with Orlando. Despite New York City's Times Square ball drop, the Big Apple came in third. WalletHub says affordability caused NYC to lose the top spot. To compile its list, WalletHub examined 100 U.S. cities. The rankings focused on three main categories, entertainment and food, prices, and safety and accessibility. When it came to hotels, Houston was the least expensive place to stay. A room in Honolulu cost the most and was six times more expensive than in Houston. WalletHub also looked at wine prices for its report. It found that Indianapolis had the most affordable vino. Wine in Detroit cost three times as much. Las Vegas, Atlanta, Miami, Los Angeles, Chicago, Denver, and Washington made the top 10 overall. North Las Vegas came in last place. 
And as New York City gears up for New Year's Eve, I got out to Times Square to talk with folks about their thoughts on the year gone by and their hopes and dreams for the year ahead. Let's see what they said during this time of reflection and anticipation as we stand on the threshold of a new chapter. Check it out. Gosh, just health and happiness, to be honest with you. That's really That's what right. I think. For yeah. Sure. I hope that I get into the University of Georgia because I'm a senior. Have you made any New Year's resolutions yet? Um, no, probably going to the gym more with my mom. Maybe being closer, I mean like with our like religion, like that's like I've been trying, because like we used to go to church a lot um, and then we kind of like stopped. So maybe trying to do that, like focus on that a little bit more. Um, just hanging out with family and friends. I'd say my grades, honestly. <laughs> new, new semester, new me. <laughs> we plan to live awesome, blessed lives for God. I want to just go on as many adventures together and uh, create, create, create. Yeah, live awesome, creative lives. I love writing, singing, and he's such a businessman, and maybe some ventures of opening our own businesses together. But I'm excited. Uh, for myself, you know, you never know. Uh, you know, we'll be praying for maybe a new family. We'll oh, see. Yeah. Since we just got married in April, of course, uh, we haven't even been married for a year. So next year, I hope that our marriage can grow spiritually with God as the center. And, you know, of course, that's a way to have a successful marriage and really just grow in that area for us. Um, how, are you how are you planning to celebrate New Year's Eve? Going to bed early. Um, I probably will also go to bed early, <laughs> honestly. Any hopes or dreams for the year ahead that you want to share? I want to make a lot of money. I want to finish school. And that's pretty much it. Travel. Yeah. I want to get engaged. <laughs> I normally don't make resolutions, but it's always go to the gym, save my money. It's always the same things, but it doesn't always happen. <laughs> what do you think about um, what do you think about starting your resolutions before New Year's Day? Sometimes I do that, but normally I end up starting my resolutions in like March. <laughs> well, you still start. Um, mine is to learn Spanish and also run a 5K. I'm NYC boy. My profession is I interview people in New York City. And New Year's Eve for me is the week after New Year's Day. Okay. And how are you going to celebrate that week? Um, I'm going to play some Fortnite. Okay. Is that new? Is that something different? No. What are you going to do that week? Ooh, that's a really good question. Yeah. I haven't really planned a lot, to be honest, yet. If you have any New Year's resolutions that are in the works, if you want to share one or two. Um, I want to be a big man with big muscles. <laughs> and here at Times Square, the iconic ball drop is just around the corner, and the city is alive with the spirit of celebration. I'm Stephanie Cox with NTD News, wishing you all a fantastic end to 2023 and an even brighter start to 2024. And if you have any news tips or feedback for the show, please feel free to email us at news.today at ntd.com. Welcome to NTD News Today. Here are today's top stories. Israel admits responsibility for a tragic airstrike, while the U.S. tries a new strategy to prevent Iran from funding terror. Former President Trump is dropped from the main 2024 ballot pending appeal. 
A Democrat who voted to impeach Trump now comes to his defense. Find out why. Beer sales are set to plunge to their lowest levels in more than 20 years. What connection does Bud Light have to the decline? And an eventful night in sports saw the NFL's Browns clinch a playoff spot while the NBA's Pistons tie a record they'd rather not have. A special look into the lives of two dancers. Both perform for Shen Yun, a classical Chinese dance group that just launched its 2024 tour. See what the buzz is about. This is NTD News Today, live from our NTD Global Headquarters. Here are Stephania Cox and Chris Beers. Former President Trump is kicked off another state's primary ballot. Maine's, Maine's Secretary of State Shenna Bellows issued the decision yesterday, making Maine the second state to disqualify the GOP frontrunner from next year's presidential primary. The decision is based on an interpretation of the 14th Amendment's rarely used insurrection clause, Bellows, a Democrat, is giving time to appeal before the order comes into effect. Trump's campaign says it will quickly file an objection calling the decision atrocious. NTD's Jeremy Sandberg has some reactions to the unilateral action in Maine. Maine Secretary of State Shenna Bellows stated she did not reach the conclusion lightly to bar Trump from the state's primary in her 34-page ruling Thursday. The U.S. Constitution does not tolerate an assault on our government, on the foundations of our government and that Maine election law and the Constitution required, indeed obligated me to act. Bellows presided over an administrative hearing earlier this month about Trump's eligibility for office. A group of former state lawmakers filed the challenge against Trump. Republican House Speaker Mike Johnson weighed in on X, calling Bellows' decision reckless and partisan. He says he's confident the Supreme Court will reverse it. GOP presidential candidate Vivek Ramaswamy had one request for Americans after Bellows' announcement, posting on X, open your eyes. It's unconstitutional, it's anti-American, it's wrong. Ramaswamy told Fox News he'll withdraw from any GOP primary ballot where competitors are forcibly removed through unconstitutional maneuvers. He's calling for other GOP candidates to follow suit. We then take Maine out of the GOP primary process. That's the logical way to handle this. Florida governor and presidential candidate Ron DeSantis told Fox, Maine's ruling is in his words opening Pandora's box. DeSantis says it defies every notion of constitutional due process, abided by for over 200 years. Maine's procedure for deciding ballot eligibility is different than Michigan's and Colorado's. Eligibility is first considered by the Secretary of State before any court. Bellows cited the Colorado ruling in her decision and its appeal. She wrote a possible reversal by the U.S. Supreme Court did not relieve her of her responsibility to act. She acknowledged that the nation's highest court is likely to eventually weigh in and told CNN she'll follow its ruling. Trump's attorneys Wednesday asked Bellows to recuse herself from the issue for public statements after January 6 that, quote, exhibit personal bias in this matter. The letter cited several past posts on Twitter, now X. They say that show she already made the conclusion on alleged insurrection then, before the submission of any evidence or argument in the current matter. Trump's team has vowed to appeal Bellows' decision to Maine's Superior Court. Maine's GOP primary is March 5th. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. A Democratic congressman from Maine is now pushing back against removing former President Trump from the ballot. Jared Golden took to Twitter explaining why he doesn't support the decision. Golden wrote, quote, I voted to impeach Tom Donald Trump for his role in the January 6th insurrection. 
I do not believe he should be re-elected as President of the United States. However, we are a nation of laws, therefore, until he is actually found guilty of the crime of insurrection, he should be allowed on the ballot. Following the January 6th Capitol breach, Golden co-sponsored the article of impeachment introduced by another Democrat. He said Trump's failure to act quickly aided people at the Capitol building that day. And Republican Congressman James Comer says he's not surprised that Maine is removing Trump from the ballot. The House Oversight Committee chair says he fears more blue states will take similar steps. Comer calls it obvious election interference, saying most voters disagree with the decision. He added that Democrats are trying to disrupt Republican momentum by polling, quote, pulling, quote, stunts like this. And now for the latest on the Israel-Hamas war. Cutting off funding to the Iran-backed Houthis in Yemen is on the agenda. The U.S. Treasury Department has imposed sanctions on those suspected of supporting the group. The sanctions target multiple currency exchanges in Turkey and Yemen. The U.S. believes the exchanges are used to move Iranian funding to the Yemeni Houthis. The move is part of ongoing efforts to curb the flow of funds to the Houthis, who have been involved in attacks on international shipping. The Houthis have seized or attacked a dozen ships since November. The sanctions freeze any U.S. assets belonging to the targeted businesses and generally prohibit Americans from doing business with them. Israel took responsibility yesterday for a pair of tragic incidents. The military admitted to launching two strikes at a refugee camp that killed some civilians on Christmas Eve. The military says fighter jets fired missiles, hitting buildings next to their intended targets. The other incident was the friendly fire deaths of three Israeli hostages killed on December 15th in Gaza City. The military says the hostages tried to signal that they posed no harm. Some allies are hiding their cooperation with the U.S. The U.S. created a joint maritime force to protect ships passing through the Red Sea from attacks by Houthi rebels in Yemen. The force is composed of 20 nations, but eight of those haven't acknowledged their contributions nor allowed the U.S. to. For analysis, we're joined by senior fellow at the Center for Security Policy, Grant Newsham. Grant, good to have you back on the show. Why do you suspect these countries aren't acknowledging their contributions to Biden's joint task force, Operation Prosperity Garden? I think part of the reason is that they're more afraid of the Iranians, more afraid of some of the countries in the Middle East, and they're really not uh, very respectful of the United States. This is a big change. Uh, you don't exactly have people rushing to join this a naval task force. It's just a loss of confidence, uh, really, in American leadership. As I think how I would put it. And as I say, there is that concern about oh, being uh, seen as actually pro-Israel or somehow being on a, uh, Israel's side. But at the end of the day, it tracks back uh, to a, really a lack of respect for the United States. All right. And how could this lack of unity we're talking about be interpreted by the international community, especially um, adversaries of the United States? Maybe you can expand on that. Well, I think they would look at it and they would say that the um, Americans are afraid of the Houthis. Uh, and if you're afraid of the Houthis, actually, um, and uh, by uh, consequence that the Houthis are not afraid of the Americans, nobody's afraid of the U.S. Uh, the Iranians aren't, the, who are basically are supporting the Houthis or are the Houthis. Uh, the Chinese aren't. They're buying a ton of Iranian oil that is funding what the Chinese are doing. The Chinese are all in for Hamas. Uh, they have a no limits partnership with Russia and the Ukraine. So nobody's afraid of the United States. And once, as I said earlier, there's just not this respect for U.S. leadership. So nobody's too eager to come out uh, 
too public, and the contributions really do not amount to much, uh, unfortunately. And let's come back to this Operation Prosperity Garden. What effect does, yeah, the lack of support um, have on the efficacy of this operation? Well, you gotta, if you're going to play the game the Americans are, which is really trying to swat away arrows being shot at you, you need enough resources. You need enough, enough ships, missiles, radar to go in there to, to hit them. And you better hope that one doesn't slip through. Uh, so as long as we're going to play this game, you're going to need a lot of resources. And if you ever go after the Houthis and potentially the Iranians at some point, you're going to need a lot more uh, material support that ships, people, missiles, sensors and the targeting systems and you're going to need the political support and when people don't want their names uh, to be revealed it suggests there's not a whole lot of uh, political support so i'm afraid that our enemies look at this and they see opportunity here uh, and this is not going to uh, to end up well now grant the u.s has enough military strength to protect the red sea uh, shipping route independently um, the houthi rebels aren't an enormous force um, why is it important for there to be joint international cooperation here as opposed to the U.S. going, going about it independently? Well, once again, as noted, I'm not so sure that, that we do have the, uh, the ability to close down the Red Sea or protect it. We're, we might, but the U.S. Navy is really stretched to its limits. It has a lot of things to do elsewhere in the world, Asia not least. Uh, so... That really is what uh, what it comes down to, is that you've got, we don't really have the resources, we don't have the Navy that we used to have, and it has just got too much to do now. Got it. And um, coming to shipping giant Maersk, they're resuming trade through the Red Sea, uh, where the, Hoopi, the Houthis are attacking these ships. How soon could we see a return to normalcy at this key shipping route? Well, that's hard to say. It's whenever the Iranians want us to return to normalcy. Um, we'll see how that works because they are behind this. And going back to your earlier question is that you do, this all potentially could expand. You know, this isn't just a question of taking out some ragtag tag rebels. This is the Iranians at work. And if you this expands to include Iran, it becomes a much bigger fight and a much bigger war. Uh, so you'd have to ask Tehran when the Red Sea is going to be safe again. Uh, I don't see it happening anytime soon, but they may for now, they may be happy just to have really stirred things up. You'll notice Iran threatened to close the Straits of Gibraltar and the Mediterranean Sea. Uh, so we'll see how this goes. And Grant, just lastly, I know you're not an election pundit, but I'm wondering how you think this issue, this maritime trade issue, will play out in the election this coming year. Well, I think it's more a question rather than, than trade. I think it's one really of uh, whether or not America's enemies are uh, deterred by what the United States does, by what the United States is, by who's in charge in the United States. And you have to ask, well, how many wars were we involved in? How many wars did our enemies start uh, during the last administration? Like zero. How many did they start this, this administration? Well, we're in at least two now. Uh, maybe two and a half, and there may be another one coming. So it very much does depend who is uh, in charge in the United States. There was a lot of laughter about the adults being in charge once the Biden administration came in. Well, look at how well the adults have done. They've gotten us into these wars that don't show any sign of ending, and our enemies are emboldened. All right, Grant Newsham, retired Marine colonel and senior fellow at the Center for Security Policy. Thank you so much. 
Yeah, thanks very much. Next up, Google agrees to settle a lawsuit for $5 billion. The suit claims the tech giant secretly tracked the internet use of millions who thought they were browsing privately. So. And some U.S. allies seem reluctant to support a new Red Sea tax task force launched by President Biden. Why? We delve deeper in just a moment here on NTD News Today. Welcome back. A group of countries is calling out Iran for ramping up production of uranium. The U.S., France, Germany, and Britain all condemn the production increase of the highly enriched nuclear fuel. The Allies don't mention specific consequences Iran could face for the production increase, but called for its reversal and said they are committed to a diplomatic solution. The uranium Iran is producing is up to 60% pure, close to the level used for nuclear weapons fuel. The International Atomic Energy Agency released a report on Tuesday. The report said Iran reversed a months-long slowdown in the production rate of the highly enriched uranium. Iran dismissed the report and said it was running its program according to the rules. And beer sales is set to plunge to the lowest levels in more than 20 years after Bud Light's recent controversy. Joining us now is NGD Business host Don Ma to discuss. Don, tell us more about this. Sure. So beer sales across uh, the United States declined in 2023 and are set to drop to their lowest level, actually, uh, in more than 20 years. And this is actually in, in the wake of the Dylan Mulvaney controversy with Bud Light. So beer shipments in the United States decreased by over 5% uh, during the first nine months of this year. Um, and the drop in sales was actually due to, uh, in part, to the widespread uh, boycotting of Bud Light. Uh, whose owner is Anheuser-Busch. But, you know, despite the controversy happening uh, near the start of the year, Bud Light sales uh, actually continued to decline from that point onwards, um, each month actually steadily declining. And the beer sales in stores were down uh, by 28% in the four weeks ending December 9th. Uh, and this is compared to the same uh, period uh, of, compared to last year. And as a result, experts are actually now saying that uh, they're antici anticipating beer sales to actually continue to decline uh, to their lowest point since 1999, so many decades ago. But in addition to uh, that, uh, changing consumer habits as well, it seems like, particularly among young drinkers, also playing a role uh, in this as well. So according to a separate data published earlier, uh, Gen Gen Z is um, consuming less alcohol than younger generations uh, of, of, of past. And the number of college-age uh, adults are opting to ditch alcohol entirely. Uh, and that has grown somewhere around 8%. So it seems like more and more Americans are, are now turn, turning away from alcohol. And some are turning to actually non-alcoholic uh, drinks and canned cocktails as well. Wow. So what other factors could also be at play here, Don? Well, it seems like uh, cannabis use as well uh, is also contributing uh, to this decline in alcohol consumption. So with more and more millennials and Gen Z Americans now viewing alcohol as uh, potentially more harmful to their health 
than actually marijuana use, it uh, seems like. And the number of young adults using marijuana as well as co-using alcohol and marijuana has increased in recent years. And, and then the rise in uh, cannabis uh, consumption comes as, of course, more and more U.S. states are legalizing uh, cannabis use for recreational purposes, as we've seen this year. Um, but, you know, despite all, all, the, all of those reasons, experts still seem convinced that uh, one of the biggest reasons behind the drop in beer sales is actually Bud Light's controversy uh, earlier this year. Uh, Bud Light has tried to reshape its image in the wake of that controversy. Um, I mean, this is through a number of things like prom uh, promotion and marketing strategies, uh, but it seems like the company uh, so far, it appears that uh, it hasn't been able to completely shift uh, its image back to where, where it was. And what other business news do you have for us today, Don? Yeah, so uh, a quick update of, with Google uh, and the consumer privacy lawsuit. Uh, the company agreed to settle a lawsuit for at least $5 billion. A California judge put the scheduled uh, February trial on hold yesterday after lawyers for Google and consumers said they reached a preliminary settlement. The lawsuit claimed that Google secretly tracked the internet use of millions who thought they were actually browsing privately. Plaintiffs say Google's analytics, cookies, and apps let the company track their activity, even when they set Google's Chrome browser to incognito mode and other browsers to private browsing mode. So Google's bid to dismiss the case was actually also denied earlier this year. Uh, but some good news for home buyers facing the least affordable housing market since the 1980s. Long-term mortgage rates are falling. So for the ninth week straight, Freddie Mac reported a drop in U.S. mortgage rates. 30-year fixed rate mortgage uh, fell to an average of 6.61% for the week ending December 28th. This is a uh, hair down from the previous week's 6.67%. And the drop over the past two months has been partially fueled by the anticipation of the Federal Reserve's rate cuts, which could be coming next year. All right. Thank you so much, Don. Thank you. And looking now at the Middle East, President Biden was aiming for a firm international response to the Houthi attacks on Red, on Red Sea shipping by launching a new maritime force. But a week after its launch, many allies don't want to be associated with it publicly or at all. Two of America's European allies who were listed as contributors to Operation Prosperity Guardian, as you heard earlier, Italy and Spain, issued statements appearing to distance themselves from the maritime force. Earlier, we spoke with retired Brigadier General Robert Spaulding for his take on this and more. General, given the recent developments in the Middle East, why do you think U.S. allies are reluctant to join the Red Sea Task Force, particularly when it comes to publicly associating themselves with it? Well, it's likely due to the large influx of Muslims into Europe. And I think it's changing the culture and social fabric of Europe. Even like in the UK, you see um, people getting penalized for, ha for flying the, the UK flag. So I think this is a challenge not only in the UK, it's also here in the United States. You see a large influx of uh, immigrants coming into the United States. There is protest, you know, in support of Hamas in, in large cities and mm. universities around the United States. And I think this is something that many people have been, you know, calling out, but it seems that, you know, in terms of our national security and foreign policy, what's more concerned about, you know, the actual citizens that 
come from these countries than the immigrants that are coming in. So and part it's, of this, it's, it's almost dystopian. So part of this um, does concern does seem to be about appearing to support Israel and in terms of the hesitation of some nations. Could you elaborate on why it may be a sensitive issue for these countries and how that plays into the broader, broader geopolitical dynamics? Well, I think what's happened um, as uh, you know, our, we've become closer in terms of our economies and our media and the internet, you know, this ability to influence the the um, the discussion, the narratives, if you will, in democracies has you know not only been a factor of our own societies. You know, it's coming from our own university systems, coming from our own education system, but it's also coming from without. So. China, Russia, Iran, North Korea all have uh, different aspects of their campaign, their political warfare campaign that are designed to, you know, prey on these divisions that are already happening within our own society. So this is a feature of the 21st century warfare. You know, it's much more political, much more psychological, yeah. it's social and cultural. And I think we have to we have to be aware of it. So do you think that, you know, this kind of reticence is a kind of short-term thinking because ultimately Iran is behind these terror militant groups via funding with the financial lifeline of the Chinese Communist Party. So surely anything that could embolden and empower these two aggressor regimes is bad news for all of us. We shouldn't really be reticent when it comes to this. Well, that's true, but I think what you see, and, and it's not just in the United States, it's not just in, in our allies' countries, it's basically throughout the free world, where you see a division between, say, the governing apparatus of the society and the actual citizens themselves. And so it's, it is kind of nearsighted, and um, it's not you know conducive to a healthy democratic society going forward. Essentially, we've decoupled our politics from the citizens that live in the country in a way that's you know, not looking after their own best interests. And looking at these proxy wars and the dynamics there, do you see a risk of this conflict escalating into a full-blown direct conflict? And what do you, do you think are the key factors or triggers that could lead to such a scenario? Well, I mean, when we say direct conflict, I mean, we're already seeing attacks on our um, service members in the region. Um, from a pol political and social and cultural perspective, we're already seeing attacks on our own society. So I think we're already there. It's just we're unwilling to acknowledge it. So how do you think the U.S. can navigate this delicate balance of addressing regional conflicts while also ensuring strong international cooperation on this front? Well, somehow you need to um, basically get into alignment between the citizenry and the governing, governing um, apparatus. And I think that only happens in our type of republic through elections. So I think this upcoming 2024 year will be very pivotal in, in deciding what direction the, the nation is going to go. Either it's going to you know, return to its principles, its founding principles, or it's going to be something you know, entirely different. And it's, you know, it's clear that you know, at least what we can see now, it's not going to be something that really holds to the standards and the principles and the values of our of our um, of our founding fathers. Brigadier General Robert Spaulding, thank you so much. Coming up, the unlikely Cleveland Browns are playoff bound while an NBA team ties a record for futility. NTD's Dave Martin joins us to discuss an eventful night in sports.
and a parade of roses is set to stroll through Pasadena, California on New Year's Day. The event takes place ahead of one of, the college, one of college football's most iconic games. We'll have the details soon when we return. Welcome back, and now for your sports news, we're joined by NTD's Dave Martin. Dave, plenty of sports action last night. Let's start with the NFL, where beat-up Cleveland Browns uh, clinched a playoff spot. How does this team keep winning? You know, I think that's what the New York Jets are probably wanting, the team they beat last night. Because, you know, both teams are in similar situations with injuries on offense. Both have tried a number of different players at quarterback. Both have great defenses, but only Cleveland is making the playoffs. A big reason why is quarterback Joe Flacco. Now, he was an unemployed 39-year-old free agent quarterback just a couple months ago. All of a sudden, he's led Cleveland to four straight wins. He's thrown for more than 300 yards in every game. Now, he was a Super Bowl MVP in 2012 for Baltimore. Lost his starting job in 2018. He's been a backup for three different teams since. Quite a run he's having right now, though. Yeah, now, Dave, in the NBA, the Detroit Pistons are tied for a record. They'd rather not have. 28 straight losses, but they were so close yesterday. Doesn't seem like they're playing better now. I mean, it really does. You know, they were on the road last night against a team with the best record in the NBA, the Boston Celtics. I believe they were 16.5-point underdogs, which is a lot. They came out and fired. They led by 19 points at halftime. It fell apart in the third quarter. Boston tied it up. Now, they showed some fight. Detroit did. They got the game to overtime, but they lost there. That's 28 in a row. That ties the overall record for longest uh, losing streak in league history. They already had the single season record. Now, they play Toronto tomorrow. I get the feeling people are rooting for them because, you know, nobody wants to have this on the resume, of course. Dave, let's come back to football, college football. Uh, Florida State could finish as the only undefeated team uh, yet they're not in the playoffs. Some of their players think that they should claim a national championship because they're undefeated. Is there any precedent for this? Yeah, actually, six years ago, Central Florida went 13-0. They beat Auburn in the Peach Bowl. They claimed a national title despite not, not, despite not getting an invite to the playoffs. Now, they're about the only ones who recognize that team as being national champions. But it's part of the problem of the exclusivity of these playoffs, you know, and the fact that not every team really has a clear path to them. I mean, what else can you do besides win every game, you know? Now, as ridiculous as that's been, it's still better than the BCS before it. That was like essentially a two-team playoff way better than before that, which was this, this mishmash of New Year's Day bowl games, and then we'd wait for the next day for the AP poll to decide who they were going to have number one. Hopefully, all these disputes will be soon behind us as they expand the playoffs to 12 teams for next season. All right. Thank you so much, Dave. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, guys. People around the world are gearing up for New Year's Day in California. Thousands of volunteers descended on, on Decorator Village in Irwindale, to help decorate dozens of floats for the annual Rose Parade. NTD's Andrew Thomas has the latest. This year's Rose Parade theme is celebrating the world through music. Millions of flowers and over 10,000 hours of work have gone into preparing for the event on January 1st. The theme itself, bringing people together, you know, it's celebrating the world of music. Rose Parade brings people together. And as floral director, I bring in a floral team. And that team itself, I have designers from Canada, Mexico, I mean, all over the U.S. The floats will be decorated entirely with only dry and fresh materials as they proceed down Colorado Boulevard. Many volunteers look forward to the unique experience and camaraderie every year. 
Oh, I'm going to be at the parade, and I'm excited to see our work as it goes by. I'm going to look for our flower. That's my flower. <laughs> Volunteer Cynthia Lay is hyped up for the parade. She hopes her family and friends appreciate her hard work. I get very excited. I get very excited I look at it. I'm like, oh my God, I worked on that one. I was like, that's the one I worked on. I like, if I see like the, the actually parts that I actually did, I'll be like, oh my God, I, actually, I would just show it off. I'm like, look, this is the one I actually did. The 135th Rose Parade starts at 8 a.m. Pacific time, Monday, January 1st. At 1 p.m. Pacific time, Michigan will play against Alabama in the Rose Bowl. The winner will head to the national championship game on January 8th. Texas and Washington will also play in the Sugar Bowl on January 1st for a shot at the national title. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. Coming up, Shen Yun Performing Arts sweeps audiences away to magical worlds on its new 2024 tour. We give you a special look into the lives of two principal dancers with the group. Stay tuned for behind-the-scenes insights. Now we bring you an exclusive interview with two principal dancers from Shen Yun Performing Arts. The host of NTD Good Morning, Evelyn Lee, sits down with siblings Marilyn Young and William Lee to learn what it takes to become a Shen Yun dancer. And we have all seen the posters and videos. Shen Yun Performing Arts is coming to a city near you. A troupe that is known to be the best worldwide for traditional Chinese dance. But what we see on stage is a result of years of hard work. So what's it really like behind the curtain? And what is life like as a Shen Yun dancer? We have the pleasure to welcome Marilyn Yang and William Lee with us today to talk about this. And what many don't actually know is that they're siblings. So welcome to both of you. So what is it like? What was your childhood essentially like? Because that involves a lot of hard training and work and discipline at such a young age. Yeah, I mean, once you start dancing, it's like it ha you flip your world upside down. You're training for hours every single day. So you have a lot of basic dance training, but on top of that, also rehearsals. So every year we're putting on a completely new performance. That means we're on the road for six months and also at the base in New York for six months. And it's just a lot of training, very physical, but also a lot of mental. It's very mental because, um, I mean, learning movements is tiring, it's hard, and you have to use your brain just as much as your body. How did you even get, or how did either of you get to start to be dancers in Shen Yun? How did this come about? It will start with me first, and my mom is a singer, and my dad actually directs movies and produces movies. So, wow. pretty involved in the arts, and my mom wanted me to try dancing when I was a young age. It, it seems like something that's a little bit odd for a young boy to try, but once I got into it, I really enjoyed it. I enjoyed the history that comes along with learning traditional classical Chinese dance, and also just, it's actually very physical. So that was actually right. quite fun. That's nice, so that it was fun on top of all this hard work. And so, and then you decided to, yeah. let's say, follow in his footsteps, right? He, Even though he told, did he tell you about how, how much hard work that would be? Uh, he likes to say that I followed in his footsteps. Oh, okay. But for me, <laughs> I think it was more like, I mean, when I watched the show, naturally, I was really awestruck with the female dancers. So it was definitely more of like that I was going for. Like I wanted to pursue that, that brilliance on stage. Like just, it's just a really nice experience. Even when I was a small kid, it was like one of my deepest memories. I just kind of went blind into it. And of course it was like, it was like a shocking, like 
change in lifestyle and everything, but it's definitely, I think he supported me coming and joining Shenyun because of he knew how much it benefited his life and it really made, I think, a change for all of us. So when you went into it, how did you feel like, you know, was there like a, when you found out what it actually involves, how was that like for you? I think at first it was more like, oh, the show's so pretty and you just want to be on stage and just perform. But I think there's a lot that came into it that it's like, it changed me as a character and definitely a lot of, to be able to train and try to become professional at anything and dance especially, you have to have a lot of self-discipline and it's a lot more than just the physical aspect, like he said, is mm. I think it's a really humbling experience. Humbling experience. So how was it for you? Was it difficult? I imagine as a 13-year-old as boy, you also need to build up that discipline. Was that something difficult to do? Uh, definitely very difficult, but it's something you almost you need to find what drives you to be a dancer. Like, just going into it because you like it, that's how you start. But as you dance, you know, or doing anything in life, you have to find, when things get tough, what really drives you. And for me, even though I was young at the time, the mission of Shin Yun is actually something that is really amazing. To revive a culture that was almost destroyed. To revive 5,000 years of traditional Chinese culture. And I think when you think about it, even when things get hard, that is actually something that's very inspirational for a young person and mm. it really drove me through some of the tougher times. That is incredible that you understand this. How long have you been dancing now and what keeps you going now? Um, I started dancing when I was 10 years old. I would say that um, there's so many aspects to it. I definitely agree that it's, it's something so, it's hard to wrap your mind around at first at such a young age that I'm going to be reviving traditional Chinese culture. Um, but as I got more into it, I realized that it's just something really, it's something that's so much bigger than myself and it was a really special feeling to know that I'm part of something bigger and I'm part of a mm. team. What would you say is the hardest part and what's your favorite part of being a dancer? Who wants to go first? <laughs> I would say the hardest part is just um, trying to become like really skilled at something, it requires a lot of practice. And there's always gonna be times when you don't wanna, you don't wanna get up in the morning to continue like the same schedule. It's just a lot of, it requires a lot of self-discipline. And I think that's something very challenging because we all have, always have those lazy days. And oh, sure. <laughs> yeah, and it's, you wanna, you wanna always be better than the you you were yesterday. So if you wanna keep on, keep on climbing up that hill really, it's sometimes you just feel like you stay in the same place for a while and you don't really see much improvement. So it takes a lot of, I think, just the mental um, push to like sh strive to become better and know that there is really, there's no limit to the, the like no limit to how good you can get. Mm. So it's always, you gotta keep pushing yourself and I think that's something that's really challenging. Mm be better than the you yesterday, that's yes. awesome. What about you? Something really hard is just the training can get very repetitive. It's almost like you can think about like going to the gym and working out, right? You have to do the same uh, motion every time, the same amount of reps, and you have to keep building on top of that. And mm -hmm. then maybe you recover a day, and the next day you want to go back, you're still kind of sore, but you still have to go if you want to improve. So dancing is the same thing. It, 
the training is quite repetitive, but what we present on stage every year is still different. So there's a there's a both sides of that coin where it's repetitive training, but new performance for us every year. So what is your favorite part? Would that be your favorite part to perform on stage? You know what's really good about being at Shenyun is that we perform all over the world. And mm. I started young, but I traveled to so many different countries, a hundred like over a hundred different cities in the world, performing and uh, presenting classical Chinese dance on stage. It's something that I'm quite proud of, but it's just a really good experience for a young person. That sounds awesome. You had mentioned before, which is the mission of Shenyun. So tell me a little bit more about what the mission exactly is and why it resonated with you. So the mission of uh, Shenyun is to revive authentic traditional Chinese culture. And why that's important is because the CCP that's in China today, the communist regime tried to systematically destroy traditional Chinese culture when they took over China. So there was a cultural revolution and they actually mm -hmm. systematically tried to destroy tr Chinese culture. They said that um, everything that is old is bad, like faith and tradition, all of these things that Chinese people have resonated with and is really the backbone of Chinese civilization for over 5,000 years, they try to get rid of that. Because when you are spiritual, you, you believe in, you know, um, you have your own beliefs. But when the CCP came in, right, you don't, they don't want people to have their own faith. Mm -hmm and be individuals. They want you to just follow what the CCP says. So really, they actually try to, you know, they had all these different movements trying to destroy culture, and all of a sudden, Shen Yun comes in, and we're trying to revive this tradition, revive this culture, which is the backbone of Chinese civilization. And, you know, they're actually quite scared of that. So right. they've interfered with a lot of our performances all over the world. They interfered? How so? So, for example, uh, when we try to perform in some theaters, uh, for example, in South Korea, in Dominican Republic, and even in America, they would send letters to the theaters. theater managers, mm -hmm. and they would try to convince them not to host Shen Yun. Yeah, I think that's good to bring up, because that's a really dark part of history that I think people should be aware of. So why is it so valuable, this traditional Chinese culture that you want to share it with the world? I think that traditional Chinese culture, it's so rich with just so many virtues and just so many characteristics on how to be a better person and that's really embedded in the ancient Chinese civilization. Um, really the culture was is divinely inspired and everything was very spiritually tied. So the history of ancient China was really all about how to become a better person, how to become um, just be make society better, mm -hmm. I think. And if we were to bring back those values today, that would definitely benefit just our society nowadays too. For us, when we do a lot of these ancient Chinese stories, these characters, we're not necessarily just acting. It's not just an act that we put up, but we really live in these virtues and we're always trying to cultivate these virtues in ourselves so that we embody them truly. So when we, portray them on stage, it's really a realistic um, portrayal and it's not something that we're just trying to put on and put on an act for. It's something I think because it's so true to ourselves, the audience mm -hmm. can really feel the how rich and just how accurate. It feels more genuine yeah. if you resonate with that character's emotions or what he's portraying. So for example, uh, Mifurin, she had to sacrifice for her baby. If you don't, if you're quite a selfish person, you might not resonate with those feelings or those virtues. And then what you portray on stage is not really going to connect with your character and it might not connect with your audience. So that's why if you want to portray a character well, you really need to resonate with 
the values that they represent. Right. So what exactly does that mean with, how does that manifest in your life? When you say it represents, you live by those values, what kind of changes do you make to your life to achieve that? I think it's a lot of the very small things. For example, Monkey King, he went from arrogant to humble. And that means that in your daily life, um, your actions and what you do should um, reflect humility, right? I can't go around being like, I'm the best. I can do all this. No, but you should know that there's always someone better than you. And actually in Chinese, like Chinese culture is believed to be divinely inspired. And for me, a lot of the skills and what I've learned in dance, I think is also given to me from the divine. It's not just my own hard work, but that's like um, something that we believe, Chinese people believe is from the gods. And even my, my skills and abilities, I think are also given to me from the divine as well. There, there is a saying, <laughs> So before learning a skill, first learn to be a good person. And oh. that, I think for a lot of dancers, I think it's very important because if you're a good person, you can better represent um, these values on stage. It's like, um, for example, if I'm telling you, uh, I like watermelon, something very <laughs> simple, right? We can all, but if I really hated watermelon, I dislike it, but I told you I like watermelon, you would feel something's a little bit off. But if I really like watermelon and I tell, I'm telling you, I love watermelon, you got to believe me, you got to try this watermelon, you feel different. So the difference is one is true and one is false. But what I'm saying is the same thing. Yeah, you know what, that makes a lot of sense to me because when you say something that you don't stand by, it definitely will feel different. Because it sounds like this, all of this is so much more for you guys than just entertaining the audience. So if the audience would watch the show and would leave the show with just one takeaway, what do you hope it would be? I think we both agree that it would be hope, actually. We want the audience to really have a sense of hope after watching our show and I think that's what why it's so meaningful to us to put on our performances. I think one way we would put it is like there's always after a storm there's always a rainbow and so we want to have our audience really get to experience that and have hope leaving our theater and I think it really helps that in the sense that we're not just an entertainment show we're not really just we don't we don't put it on so you can have just laughs or like mm. just have like a momentary piece of like escape. It's more like we really want you to be able to take away these values because I think in Xinyin we have like 20 pieces in our whole program and it's each story I think really has a deep moral or something you can learn from. And that really is why I think traditional Chinese culture is so important. It's because mm. each story, it really has something that's meaningful. It has a moral to the story. The story of Shen Yun is actually a story of hope. Chinese culture was almost destroyed because of the CCP. Mm. But Shen Yun was founded in America, where we were able to revive this traditional Chinese culture and share it with the world. And hope is something that is not a ver or a value that is only you know good for the Chinese people. Hope should be something that everyone all over the world you know can. Mm -hmm. It's something that everyone can resonate with this story, and it might just inspire you a little bit in your daily life as well. And along with it is the tradition and virtues of Chinese history and Chinese culture. It's something that's universal. So a really important parts of Chinese uh, culture, such as faith, compassion, and humility. These are all things that we can have a little bit more of in our daily lives. Mm -hmm. I just mentioned uh, in the beginning of this interview, you guys are almost um, out, 
off to the airport, you're, you guys are starting your tour, so where can people catch you guys on stage this season? I'm back in Europe. <laughs> My company's in Surprise. Europe. Yeah. So we have eight companies and we're traveling all over the world, but check out shenyun.com for specific cities. Mm -hmm. So are you going to be in Mexico again? I will be in Mexico this year. But okay, lovely. Always, always. <laughs> if you want to find William Lee, just find him in Mexico. Okay. <laughs> Maybe I'll come and wave, from, wave to you from offstage. All right. It was a pleasure talking to you today. Um, it was very insightful. I'm very inspired, I have to say. Actually, William just started his performance in Boston yesterday. So find out when Shen Yun comes to your city, visit shenyun.org. And before we sign off, this broadcast wraps up our coverage for 2023. As we head into a new year of reporting, all of us here at NTD News Today would like to thank you for watching. With your support, we're excited to start fresh in our efforts to inform, educate, and entertain, bringing you the latest global headlines and even adding a dash of intrigue and joy to your day. From our team to your home, we wish you and yours a safe and healthy new year. And we'll be back with more stories next year. We can't wait to see you in 2024.